if you've been with us for a while, we've been in this series now uh, in the book of Amos, like a good neighbor, for eight weeks thus far. And I have a confession to make to you guys. Today marks the ninth week, and, and if I'm being honest, I'd like to move on and preach some more pleasant pieces of Scripture. You know, I love to visit some encouragement texts. You know, uh, he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll uh, give you rest for your souls. He'll do exceedingly abundantly and above. I would love to do some uh, uh, encouraging type of text. And uh, I'm worn out, I find, emotionally just from reading Amos over and over and then hearing it preached about week after week, eight long weeks of hearing about the judgment of God, uh, folks. I've grown weary, and perhaps you have too. But then I remembered something. Uh, in fact, I remembered three things that helped me to endure and to appreciate this oh-so-tough text. Would you like to know what they are? Well, see me after church. Uh, <laughs> And I tell you, you know, no, seriously, the first thing I remembered is in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, in the King James it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And in, the, in the ESV it says were written for our instruction, right? That we, through patience, or endurance in the ESV and comfort or encouragement of the scriptures might have hope. This means, saints, that Amos, with, with all of its uh, toughness, was written for us to learn some things uh, about God and even about ourselves as human beings. The question has to be asked, can you ever really learn enough about God? Or can you ever really learn enough about yourself? I, I submit to you that the answer is no on both counts. Uh, no matter how long you spent in the scriptures, there's always more to go. Uh, how many of you have had that experience that some text that you have uh, dove deeply into and come back a year later or whatever and dive in again and like, oh, I didn't even see that there the last time, and I spent like 8, 12, 10 weeks, you know, diving in, reading it every day over and over. How did I miss that before? Only to discover that the water was still deeper, you, you know. And, and how many of us, if we're honest, have learned quite a bit about ourselves. You, you know, uh, a lot of life is lab. You think you know who you are until you go through some different experiences. You know, I may have learned some things about yourself in the last two years that you didn't know about yourself prior to pandemic times. You know, a lot of us found out we're, we're big chickens. Right, you know, scared to go anywhere. Like, uh, you know, some of us found out we're brave, foolishly so, some of you, whatever you might have found out. You know, you found out some different things, right? The second thing I learned or remembered is that Amos is not directly about me. It's not directly about me or you. See, you can read through Amos in less than 30 minutes. Hopefully you've done that. 
Studying it will take you significantly longer, but in either case, no matter how emotionally bent out of shape you get in either reading, listening to, or studying Amos, the fact will remain that what is being described in Amos is not this day directly happening to you or me, praise God. Right? You see, we're, we're reading about, we're preaching, we're listening to a major whooping that somebody else is, uh, has gotten already. This is what we're reading about. We're reading about it from the vantage point of history, right? So the whooping has already happened a long time ago. And I, and I don't say that to minimize Amos in our lives. It certainly has application. And if we're doing our job right, as those who declare the word to you, application should be clear. But I don't, but what I do rather want us to, to do is to get ourselves in the right emotional space to properly receive our portion. I don't know if you knew this, but coming to church is not a mindless endeavor. It is not an endeavor that you say, you know what, I'm going to get up and go to church today and, and I'm sure the word is going to be just right and it's just going to be just what I need. All right, you, you know. Now, by virtue of the providence of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it is right what we need. The question is not, has God whipped up a meal for you today? The question is, are you ready to receive what he whipped up? Right, you, you know, and so we have to make sure that we're in the right emotional space, if you would, to properly receive our portion. I don't need to be emotionally drained in reading, preaching, or listening to Amos. I need to be emotionally equipped by reading, listening to, and even preaching Amos. And if we allow our heartstrings to be pulled in the wrong direction, What's going to happen inevitably is that we will miss what the entire book is really all about. Did you know you can spend eight, nine, ten weeks missing it? Because you got your heartstrings in the wrong space? I, I told you guys this the last time I spoke, but let me remind you. Amos is a book about how Israel turned their backs on God, which had very predictable horizontal effects, human to human how God felt about it, and what he did to try to get them to come back to him. That, that's it. In, in a nutshell, if you boil Amos down, right, this is what Amos is all about. And if we lose track of this, we'll end up feeling sorry for the wrong person or people in the story. Now, if you've been with us, just raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let's, let's just do a quick poll. How many of you guys, as we have gone through Amos, at some, at some point in time, kind of felt sorry for Israel? The rest of y'all are some heartless people. We just going, we, we need Lord, give them compassion. Now, you got to be careful, because you could find yourself being righteously indignant, like, mm, them people. You know, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been me. Now, let's do another poll. How many of y'all... See, some of y'all got soft and squishy. Some of y'all is, is uh, the other group of people who are just hard and chiseled folk. How many of y'all have, have looked at Israel like, that wouldn't have been me? Okay, so I, I, I'm just curious. What's the third group? What, what, are, what are the rest of y'all at emotionally? Y'all just emotionally distant. I mean, we need some counseling services up in here. You, you know, it's, it's going to be all right. I'm praying for y'all. What I'm about to say is going to sound a bit harsh, but I'm okay with it. 
But when you read Amos, what you should first say is, man, how could they treat God like that? That, that should be, as Christians, that should be our first thought when we go through a book like Amos and see God unleash on people or predict doom and gloom on people. Our first thought cannot be, oh, that's so bad that happened to them. I'm not saying that that's not part of, of your menu, but if we're, if we're reading it correctly, we have to side with God, right? And I'm going to tell you why in just a second. See, uh, um, if, well, let me just remind you of a few facts about God. Run down the list. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is perfect. God is love. And I could go on with these various characteristics of who God is, right? Now, if you walk up on me, you catch me on the wrong day, you walk up on me and I'm severely disciplining one of my sons, maybe you have reason because of my imperfect state to ponder whether what I'm doing is too much or even abusive, right? If you catch me as a parent on the wrong day, if you catch me as a, uh, an educator on the wrong day, maybe I'm just get, doing a bit too much in, in, in dealing with that child or my children, right? Because I'm imperfect, you got at least reason to have seeds of doubt, right? But, but what happens when you walk up on this holy, just, righteous, merciful, loving, and perfect God who is severely disciplining his children? What is it that you have to ponder? I want to submit to you the thing that you have to ponder when you walk up on God doing something that seems so out of pocket to you, you, you you're going to have to wonder what did they do to deserve this? Not, God, why are you being so, but what did they do? Because if you're asking God, why are you being so, what we're doing is elevating our judgment above the judgment of God. We're bringing God's actions and activities into question and God help us. There is a space where God allows us to question what he's doing. God has no problems with questions of clarity. When you're confused, he says, if you lack wisdom, come ask me. Got you. No problem. God has a major problem when folks start questioning the way he runs his universe. There's a major problem when we start questioning how he handles his people. After all, Jesus walking around like, yo, do you have the deed to you? I got the pink slip on you. Right, right. And for some of you guys who didn't know, because I know we think, you know, we're Americans and we got rights. Right, right. Raise, raise your hand if you're a Christian. Uh, this is not to embarrass anybody. If you're not a Christian, praise the Lord, I'm glad you're here. Right? So if you're a Christian, there exists somewhere a piece of paper with your name on it and what it costs to pay for you. Right? The Bible would call it the Lamb's Book of Life. And your name's written in it. And Jesus paid the full price for your and my redemption. Guess what that means? You're not going to like this because it's, it's, it's really deep. Well, what does that mean? That means that Jesus owns me. 
which means he has rights of ownership. He gets to do with me what he wants to, and, and here's the really part of the stuff for me. He don't even have to consult me about it, Deli. He don't have to say, hey, Flynn, what do you think about this? I really think about doing this with your life. Sonny, you know, uh, I know you was thinking about this, but I was really thinking about this. I mean, you know, okay, come, let's reason together. Right? Some of y'all like to abuse scripture. Like God was saying, hey, can, can, hey next week, can, you, I'm free next week. Uh, can you come in for a meeting? You know, so we can discuss your life. Right? right? I, I've been waiting for that, that, that unction from the Spirit. To, to, I keep waiting, and it hasn't happened yet. Why? Because I don't own me. He, he owns me. Now, I got to keep going because I, I, uh, last time I told you I had 90 minutes, I only used 45, so I really feel like y'all owe me. All right, right. You, you, you know, this is how you play it, Fines. You got you to give them a little something and then take it back. Later. This is just anyway. All right. Now, um, we're going to get ready to officially start the message, but I do want to give you the third thing I remember. And... That's simply this, that this text was my assignment for the day. I simply didn't have any choice uh, to preach any other text but this one. So if that's a problem for you, send your complaints to S-O-N-N-Y at DetroitChurch.com. With that being said, uh, let, let's take a look at Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. My title is a simple one that leaps off the pages of this chapter, and it's simply this. God don't play. God don't play. Amos chapter 7 in the English Standard Version. This is what it says. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again 
prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. The Lord had a blessing to the reading of his word. Father God, we bless your name. We thank you, God, for this time. My prayer, God, is simple, that you would prepare us to hear from you. And that, Lord, we might get our portion and that we might be edified, instructed, rebuked, chastened, Lord. Whatever your purposes are, fulfill them in us today, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can probably see why I titled the message, God Don't Play. But if for some reason you missed it, let me give you guys a simple outline that will give us the rhythm for this chapter. In verses 1 through 6, we see two visions of God utterly destroying Israel, two intercessions by Amos, and two acts of mercy from God. In verses 7 through 9, we see a third vision, an interpretation of that vision, and a divine decree of judgment. In verses 10 through 17, we get to hear what is being said behind closed doors by those who have heard, who have heard Amos. We get to see and hear their response. We get to see how Amos responds to them and finally how God responds to them and then we're done. So let's dive on in. Take a second look, if you would, at the first three verses. The first three verses. Again, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings when they had finished eating the grass of the land. I said, oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord, right? Now, I've already said that we'll see ju the judgment of God, the intercession of Amos, and a merciful act by God in each of these first two visions, all right? But let's look a bit closer uh, as we dive in. Amos records that God showed him the vision, right? Look carefully at your text, right? Uh, he, he says he showed me the, this, this vision, right? And um, I lost my spot. What this tells me, this word, this word rather show here, what it means is to cause one to see something to cause one to see something. And this tells me that this vision is not a product of Amos's imagination. Amos just wasn't there sitting chilling one day after coming from his local cannabis distribution spot, right, and just thinking deep thoughts about nothing. All right, then it just came to him, right? No, no, no. Amos was, as we'll see, minding his own business when God came upon Amos and, and drafted him into service, and then God said, hey, look, I'm about to, let me tell you what I'm up to. 
It is not often that God gives somebody this level of insight in terms of what he's up to, right? Um, now, notice what's revealed. Let's dive into the vision. It said that God was forming locusts. I, got, I sent him a picture. You guys got the picture of the locusts. I mean, gross, gross, you bug people out for a minute, right? Uh, hopefully they got it. Um, this word forming means to fashion, right, or, or to form, and here it speaks specifically of divine activity. So this is no random natural happenstance. In fact, it transcends the natural order or the cycle of things in both magnitude and timing, right? And I believe in, in this case we see both. He's about to go beyond nature in magnitude and timing. And so what I don't want you to think is, oh, it's locust season. Right? You, you, you know, now I mean, every year in my house, when it gets hot, we put the air conditioners in, and then for some reason, flies are in the house. It's been happening for a decade in my house, and we run around killing flies and letting flies out. Now, before we put the AC units in, there are no flies. After we take the AC units out, there are no flies. It happens every summer when we put the AC units in. We look it in the air conditioner. Flies, are you in there? Right? You know, we don't see flies, right? So for us, it is both predictable. So we're not wondering, God, are you cursing us with flies? Because it's happened every year since we started putting AC units in. So the timing of it for us is normal. Now, if it was December... No AC units in, windows closed shut, we got the heat on, and I'm seeing flies in my house. Then I got to wonder, God, are you up to something? Right? And, and so, understand, God wants to make sure, as he delivers this vision, that nobody will think, oh, this is just a normal rhythm of things. Right? And he wants to go beyond, oh, it was nine or ten flies. It's always nine or ten flies. So he's going, to go, he's going to violate the timing of it, and he's going to violate the magnitude of it. So they won't be thinking it's locust season. We should expect, like, your, wet, your weather report. Today we'll have, uh, you know, 10 or 12,000 locusts today, but by tomorrow things will clear up, right? So, so no, no, no. It says that God was forming locusts. Now, don't ask me how God does this. Maybe he whispered to the locusts, hey, I need you guys to multiply, like, out of this world. Or maybe God, you know, God speaks things into existence. He, he, he created all the, the life forms except man by speaking them into existence. So God can speak some more locusts into existence. There's nothing preventing him from doing so and not telling me you about it. Right? So this, this could be one of those occurrences, right? And, and so what I want us to understand is that God is actively involved in what he is about to do to Israel that he is showing Amos. He is about to go beyond the normal scope and the normal timing of things in his judgment that he shows Amos. Are you guys with me? All right, now, it says here uh, that this happens when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout after the king's mowings. And I know that this cleared up a lot for you guys when you read it, right? Because you guys are a deep bunch, but I was confused. Like, what in the world are you talking about, right? Uh, 
What's up with the latter growth in the king's moorings is this. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it states that this was the nation of Israel's most vulnerable time of the year. The locusts were being loosed on the land after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. The king had the right to claim the first cutting of the grain for his military animals, according to 1 Kings 18.5. The second crop, either what grew after the first cutting or a separate later planting, was the final growth of the season before the summer's dryness. In that part of the world, they have rainy season and dry season, right? And if it were lost, the people would have, get this, nothing to eat until the next harvest. So a, a locust swarm was one of the most dreaded plagues of the ancient East. Uh, as a swarm made its way across the land, people despaired because it was an enemy against whom they were helpless. Now keep this in mind. This wasn't an enemy they could fight against. This wasn't an enemy that they could plan their way around or finagle, right? What, what would happen if all of a sudden we walked out of church and found out that every grocery store in the Detroit metropolitan area had no food on the shelves whatsoever? Right? Nowhere you could drive. They had no food, right? This, this is, think about it in, in those terms, right? And then you say, dog, I said I was going to go shopping right after church, right? This, this, is what, this is what's going on here, right? When the plague was passed, they called the locust swarm a plague. And after they finished eating up everything, this is what would happen. Suffering and death by famine is what would follow. Suffering and death by famine. Famine. Now, now Amos was aware of this, and so what did Amos do? He petitioned God on behalf of Israel. Oh, Lord God, please. Notice what he says. He says, forgive. That's the word, forgive. He asked for forgiveness for Israel. This word means to pardon, right? It, it assumes knowledge, it, it assumes rather or acknowledges the guiltiness of the one in need of pardoning. And so Amos doesn't mount a defense. If it pleases the court, I would like to let you know why you shouldn't judge these people, Lord. They really are good people. They just misunderstood, Lord. They just got issues, Lord. They had a bad upbringing, Lord. They had a good excuse for why they worshiped those golden calves, Lord. No, that's not how Amos comes. That might be how you or I might come. Amos doesn't deal with any kind of a defense on behalf of Israel. He just says, Lord, forgive them. I know they're guilty. How many times do you or I throw ourselves on the mercy of the court? Or do we try and be a defense attorney against an all-knowing, all-seeing God? I mean, you know, hey, I, I've been there. I mean, you know, I've tried to legislate, rationalize, outsmart God, right? You, you know, and I won't share any stories with you this week uh, from my sordid past, but that's a fruitless endeavor. Right, right. God knows all. He sees all. He's everywhere. And, and just in case you forgot, 
He even knows your thoughts. So there's no point in us trying to present our best defense so God don't have to jack us up. Better to do what Amos did and just say, Lord, please forgive. This is what he does. And that's not just a personal ethic. We can ask this on behalf of our nation, right? Because this is what Amos is doing. Now, Amos is the prophet to this nation, but there's nothing stopping us from praying, God, please forgive us. Don't let the worst possible thing happen, God, please. Amos' reason for the request is interesting. He, he asks a question, how can Jacob stand? Jacob is, is co-word for Israel, right? And then he makes a statement. He is so small. This is this, this phrase, and he repeats it twice, all right? It's a really interesting phrase because the word stand here means to sustain oneself, right? How can Jacob sustain himself, right? And the word small here means feeble, right? You know, he is so feeble, it says, so, so uh, uh you know, small. Now, I, I want you to notice, if you've been paying attention, notice the vast difference between how Israel saw itself and how Amos sees Israel. Fonz has been telling us every time he, he's preached about the, the prosperous, self-sustaining, militarily strong Israel. This is how they saw themselves. Sound familiar? It might, right, right, right. Prosperous, strong, uh, you, you know, self-sustaining, militarily strong, right? This is how they saw themselves. And notice how Amos saw them primed for destruction and feeble. God help us if I think I am self-sustaining, prosperous, and strong, but I'm really pitiful and feeble. I mean, that's some deluded thinking right there. You, you know, how, how in the world could you be so far from the truth? That you think you're this and you're on the absolute opposite end of it. Primed for destruction and feeble. I wonder how we see our nation. In the next verse, we see the Lord's response. He relented. This word here means to repent of one's own doings. It's an interesting word. This is one of those places in Scripture, I don't know if you knew it or not, where we see God changing his mind on a matter. Right? Uh, we don't have time for Q&A because we could get into some really deep stuff and chop it up good. We get the panel up here, you, you know, and let y'all throw questions at us. Uh, and I wouldn't answer any of them. I would let Megan and Sonny answer all of them. But uh, uh, we don't have time right now. And so we're going to see this again in just a few moments. But I, I will say this, right? There are aspects of God that are changeable. And there are other aspects of God that aren't. Make sure you know the difference, all right? If I throw some $2 words at you, we talk about the immutability of God and immutability of God, right? Uh, I won't even charge you for those $2 words, right? Um, so so let, let's just look uh, really quickly, all right? God cannot change. These are the things God cannot change. God cannot change in his being, his character, his purposes, his perfections, or his promises. All right, if you're taking notes, I'll give it to you again. He cannot change in his being, his character, his purposes, his perfections, or his promises. Those are the things God cannot change, right? 
He can change in his emotions and actions in response to different situations. So don't bother asking God, God, last week you blessed me, and then this week you let them steal the car that you blessed me with last week. What's up, God? Because you might have been idolizing it when he gave it to you, like, yeah, look at my whip. You know, like we whipping and nay and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, he was doing all that. He said, you know what? I thought I could give you something. Give it here. Right? Hey, sometimes God had to take, take the toys back. Some of y'all done got your toys taken out. Don't, don't front. We're going to keep moving. Now, that's all I can say on, on that. And I know you may have more questions. Talk, holler at us later. What we see is that this is just such a moment where we see God changing it up. In verses 4 through 6, all right, I spent a lot of time on that vision. I'll spend a little bit of time on this one. In verses 4 through 6, we see the next vision. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then said I, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. The pattern is the same. God will wipe them out, this time by fire. Amos' response is the same, except for one small change. Did you see it? What's the one difference between this vision and Amos' response and the previous vision? What is it? Shout it out. Cease. Very good. You guys are great Bible students, right? The word is cease. That's the difference. He didn't ask God to forgive them. He asked God to cease. And this word here means to forbear or to leave off. All right? Now, one of the things I praise God for in this COVID season is that student loans have been in a state of forbearance. Right? We haven't had a hallelujah. That's right. Right, right? You, you know, that season may be coming to an end. Let's keep praying, y'all. But, uh, you, you know, I'm like, President, please cancel my student loans. Right? Now, now um, so, so we understand this concept of forbearance, right? He, he says, forbear. Now, I still owe. I'm just not paying. Right? There's a difference. So, so make sure we are clear. He's asked God to forgive, pardon them, and then don't give them what you owe them, right? In, in this case of judgment by fire, right? Um, both the forgiveness and the forbearance of God are merciful acts, which is one of his unchanging aspects. You, you know, uh, there's so much here that I really want to just, it's easy to just dive off into a really deep theological conversation. One of them being the mercy of God. I'm sitting there thinking like, God, you say in your words, your mercy endureth forever, right? You know, and all that, but right here, we know that your mercy doesn't endure forever. I know the Bible can't contradict itself. There's no conflict in the scriptures. And so God helped me to wrap my mind around my understanding of your mercy endure forever. When what my eyes see is that your mercy clearly has a particular timeline decided by you. God, how do I reconcile that? Well, one of the things is to make sure that the word mercy endures forever is the same mercy that's being used in my others when I'm seeing him not show, quote unquote, mercy, right? Uh, and, and I'm going to come back to this thought. I'm not going to leave you hanging on that one, I promise. I'm going to come back to that later, all right? But we got to get into 
our third vision in verses 7 through 9. Everybody still with me? All right. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. If you got that graphic, put that one up, please. All right. Uh, In his hand after the scriptures. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Well, well, right away, you can see the difference between this vision and the first two. All right, there's some significant differences here. Notice firstly that we don't see immediate destruction or the means of destruction. All right, in the first two visions, we saw both how they were going to be destroyed and what they were going to be destroyed by in the first two visions, right? Instead, we see God, and I don't know what God looked like. He says he saw God in his vision, so don't ask me what God looked like. I don't know, right? And so he saw God, he saw a wall, and he saw an object, right? Now, again, if you guys have that, that, because not everybody, who in here don't know what a plumb line is? Okay, right, please have that graphic. There it is. Now, uh, there's a wall, and, and they use this. They still use plumb lines today, by the way, although we got laser versions of them now. The string with a lead weight attached to it hangs from the top of a wall and goes straight down, all right? Gravity makes it go straight down, right? And you judge the straightness of the wall not by how it looks to your eye, but how it measures to the straight plumb line, right? So the, the plumb line is exact. The plumb line is objective. It's not, do I feel like it's straight? What do you think? How do you see it? It's, it's exactly straight. It's an objective measure by which to judge the wall. So I can measure the distance between the wall and the line at the top. I can measure the distance between the line and the wall at the bottom. And if they come out the same, I know I got a straight wall, right? If they don't come out the same, I know I got a crooked wall. And I got time. If I get to it early, I can tap the wall back into place. So it's not leaning. If I, if, I, if I let it set too long, then I got to tear the wall down and start over, right? So this is what a plumb line looks like. Now, in the scripture, he says, I saw a wall and I saw a plumb line, right? And I saw that, that, that God was holding the plumb line. We're going to get to that in a second, right? And so this, this is what we see here. Now, Amos mentions when he's asked what he sees, uh, he mentions only one thing. Right? Amos cast the vision. He, he said, this is all that I'm looking at. Then when God says, what do you see? The only thing that Amos mentioned, he don't say, I see God high and lifted up. Not Isaiah. Right? He don't say, I see a great wall. The only thing that he mentions is the plumb line. And, and this is interesting, right? He, he, he mentions this plumb line. God uses this observation to reveal the rest of his plan. You'll notice that Amos stops speaking after saying, I see a plumb line. The rest of the verses in this section is all God speaking. And that's completely different than earlier. God spoke, and then Amos responded to what God said. Here, God spoke, Amos said, I saw a plumb line, and then God says, I got it from here, right? Let me tell you what I'm about to do, right? Uh, He's about to reveal the rest of his plan, which we'll discuss momentarily. But notice lastly that 
This time there is no plea from Amos for Israel. There's no plea. No God forgive them. No God forbear. All right, Amos is silent. Don't know why Amos is silent. Maybe God, you know, gave him that look that your mama give you when you know you got to, if you say one more word. Right, right. You, you, hey, I've, you know, we all parents got that look, right? After answering the question, God does all the talking. Excuse me. Thank you. Those are the differences. What about the similarities? Judgment is still happening. It's not locusts. It's not fire. But there are these three things. Write this down. Desolation, destruction, and death. Desolation, destruction, and death are still happening in this. Another of God's unchanging characteristics, saints, is holiness. What does that mean, Pastor Flynn? It means this, that he must judge sin. He must judge sin. Let me say it one more time. He must judge sin. If he doesn't judge sin, then he is an unjust judge. Right? You know, you don't want somebody to break into your house, they catch him. You go to court, testify, yeah, I saw him. I saw Pookie break in. I saw him walk out with my flat screen and run down the street, Your Honor. I saw it. I videotaped it. And then I walked down the street and seen where he went. And then the judge says, ah, he had a bad upbringing. You know, Pookie, not guilty. You out your mind, like, wait a minute, hold on. This is a miscarriage of justice. Judge, you are an unfit judge, an unjust judge. And so, God help us if we think of humanity and we have such lofty expectations of humanity in those positions and we don't think that a perfect, holy God is not going to judge sin. He has to, or else again, he is not holy, he is not perfect, he is not just. So he must judge sin. You guys with me? All right. Now, that, that's not cute. That's not squishy, but it's fact, right? He, he must judge sin. Now, uh, he must judge sin, and here he describes the nature of that judgment. I, I would like to submit to you that whenever we get ourselves into a prolonged state of purposeful disobedience, we will indeed experience these same three things, desolation, destruction, and eventually death, right? Again, not accidental, oops, disobedience. Purposeful, prolonged disobedience will inevitably result in desolation, destruction, and eventually death. Now, you put that, you put those three in any area of your life, right? Take, take your marriage if you're married. The wife can take an, an offense, but let me start right with a string of them. Prolonged offenses, whatever they might happen to be. And is my marriage going to stay rock solid, nice and healthy? Of course not. What is it going to experience? Desolation. That means things go down in their quality. We see the demise of something, the slow demise, right? You know, we, walk, we go around the city and we see the neighborhoods. They didn't used to look like that. That's a picture of desolation, the slow decay of a thing until it no longer resembles what it used to look like. 
right? Now, whether that's in my marriage, in my work, in my personal life, in my mental state, if I get myself into a prolonged, purposeful uh, disobedience to God, I will experience inevitably desolation in my life. That desolation will lead to destruction. Inevitably, it will lead to my own personal destruction, but it's not limited to my own personal destruction because as we see, my single actions over a long enough period of time, I can desolate my family. And so other people who don't have anything to do with my personal sin can be impacted by my sin to the point where their lives don't look like they used to look. And so desolation is not private or compartmentalized. It spreads, right? And so, and, and death, when it comes, does not have to just be the death of me individually. It could be the collective death of my family. It could be the larger collective death of our church, right? The larger collective death of our city or state or nation, all because of purposeful, prolonged disobedience to God. You guys with me? Now, before we move on, let's talk a little bit about the vision. Israel is the wall in the vision. Israel is the wall. And notice that it was built with the plumb line. He says, I see a wall built with a plumb line. What does that mean? That means that when it was built, it was built right. It was tight. I don't, you know, if you look at the wall that was in that graphic, that wall was straight. It was solid. It was able to do its function, what walls are supposed to do, right? He says, Israel was the plumb line. It was built with the plumb line, right? And so this lets us know that it, it, the Lord seems to be the one who built it since the plumb line was in his hand, right? And so Israel was built by God. He built it right, and what else do we see? The fact that that same plumb line is being used in the judgment. He built it with a plumb line, but the plumb line is still there. He didn't put his tools away. Most of us who are handy, we pull the tools out, we use them, we put the tools back. Right? If you ain't handy, you ain't got no tools, so don't worry about it. You, you'll get the illustration later, right? God says, I built it with a plumb line, but I didn't put the plumb line up. I'm continually assessing the quality of what I built based on this standard that I set in place. Right? This is what's being said right here. Right? So he's still there with this, with this plumb line, right? Now, um, what that means for us is that that same plumb line is being used in the judgment says that God is not introducing any new standards upon his people for measuring them. So God's not coming out of left field. Hey, guess what, y'all? I know you thought you just the Ten Commandments, but I got 11 and 12 this week. Come back next week, I'll, I'll give you the updated, revised version, 3.0. You know, we'll add 14, 15, and 16. Right, and I know that's going to be a little problematic for y'all because you're wondering, God, are we cool? Are we not cool? I mean, you know, because you keep adding rules, right? No, no, no. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you the whole playbook up front. Make sure you read the playbook. And that's what I'm going to judge you by, the playbook, right? And it's not going to change. All right, again, the Lord says, 
I built it. I got the plumb line in my hand. I'm not changing. I ain't changed my plumb line. Are you guys with me? Right, right. So no new standards upon his people, not for them, not for us. Some say that the plumb line is the law, for by it they have been found crooked. Right? Some say that. The Lord then made a dire promise. This is, for me, one of the most dire promises in the Bible. I mean, there's some places you go in the scriptures and you just got to pause and be like, good God, did he just say what I think he just said? He, he really did just say what I thought he just said. Right? Did, did, you, did you catch it? He says, I will never pass by you again. Now, when I say never, that means mostly, maybe, almost, coulda. Like, under the right circumstances, my never can become an always. <laughs> under the right circumstances, then yours can too. But when God says never, and he can't lie, and he has the vantage point of existing at all points in time, so there are no unforeseen circumstances by which his never becomes an always, that means never. He, he will never pass by. And if you say, okay, well, what do you mean pass by? The word pass by here, or the phrase, means to overlook or forgive. And, and what we learn is a sobering truth. And I said I would come back to it. Here's a sobering truth. Write this down. God's mercy is not inexhaustible. God's mercy is not inexhaustible, or better yet, God will not show mercy perpetually. Write it down either way you want to, but keep it in mind. God will not show mercy perpetually. It violates his holiness to do so. He, he has to deal with sin, so he can't show mercy perpetually. It's perpetually a part of his character that he is merciful, therefore he shows mercy but he will not show mercy perpetually, right? Israel and the political regime of Jeroboam have just run out of time and they don't even know it yet, right? They, they've just run out of God's mercy. And this takes us to our final section of the text, verses 10 through 17. In verses 10 and 11, we see the betrayal of Amos by the priests. In verses 12 and 13, we see the advice to Amos given by the priests. In verses 14 and 15, we see Amos' testimony. And in verses 16 and 17, we see God's judgment on the priests, the king, and the nation. Let's take a quick look at these, and then I'll let you go home. I'm going to make some points of application, and then we're out of here. Amen? It begins with the betrayal. In Amos verses, uh, in verses uh, 10 and 11, notice what it says here, that Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, text, email, donkey, whatever, right? Saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. This is the message that Amaziah sends to King Jeroboam II, right? And I call it a betrayal because it looks like Amaziah stabbed Amos in the back. That's what it looks like, right? But that's not really what happened. All right, he didn't, he didn't stab him in the back. He stabbed him in the front. Uh, Amaziah is a priest. Amos is a prophet. 
Presumably, they both work for God. That's what you might think by virtue of title, right? Wrong. Amaziah works for King Jeroboam II. So we will call him an establishment preacher. He worked for the man, right? Uh, we'll go a step further. He got his preaching credentials off the internet. He's not sanctioned by any local body of Christ. Right, right. You know, they, some of y'all got those credentials. I'm not trying to marry nobody. Um, at, uh, Jeroboam II appointed Amaziah back in 1 Kings 12, 31. You don't have to look there. Just jot that down. He was what I'll call a dollar store priest who was not picked by God, didn't come from the right tribe to even be a priest. Right? Didn't come from the right tribe to even be a priest. He was a company man who led people in worshiping one of those two golden calves I told you about last time. All right? So he was handpicked by the government, a government preacher. Right? Not, not a one sent by God. This is who we're talking about right here, right? This guy rats Amos out because he is loyal to this godless king and is worried about the people returning to God or at least rebelling against the king. These are his concerns based on Amos' proclamation. He doesn't want the people to keep hearing, God's going to jack you up if you stay in this situation of being disobedient. Get right, get right, get right. Famine's coming, fire's coming, something's coming. Please get back with God. You hear that long enough, you might start thinking, I want this guy saying something to us. Maybe we ought to look at our lives. So he's like, no, no, we got to get this man out of here, right? And I'll tell you why, why in a second, right? Um, he is worried that this fake religious system that he and Jeroboam have built will end, and so he tries to incite the king against Amos. Never think that people who are bad preachers, some bad preachers are bad because nobody taught them. They didn't learn. So those are the people who drive over your foot by accident. You're still injured. But they didn't do it on purpose. Then you got the people who go looking for your foot. And, they, you know, so these people are purposely trying to injure you for their own benefit. Right? There, there are those who have malevolent intent with a Bible in their hand and a collar around their neck and a cross hanging down. They have malevolent intent. And Amaziah is that kind of an individual. He won't benefit if people return back to God. It's going to be bad for business. Right? This is who Amaziah is. Now, remember, when I started this message, I said, I don't want us to be emotionally in the wrong spot because I know where we're headed and I know what our heartstrings are going to want to do. So I need to make sure, A, that I prepped you and B, that I tell you exactly who we're dealing with. Right? So we'll know whose team to line up on when the whooping comes, right? This is what's going on right here. You guys still with me? All right, now. What's interesting in all of this is that almost everything that Amaziah said concerning Amos when he sent the message to the king was true. Almost everything, right? Now, you say, well, what was the stuff that wasn't true, Pastor? Notice that he left out God. Now, Amos comes on the scene and he says, thus saith the Lord. 
bow. When Amaziah sends the message, he says, Amos said that you're going down, king, and you're a bunch of crap, king. I mean, he was really just, you know, just making it like this man is a conspirator against the king as opposed to a representative of God. He, Amaziah doesn't say God told Amos to tell you. Because if he says God told Amos to tell you, Jeroboam might mess around and repent. And then that still puts Amaziah out of business. So I'm not going to tell the king that God told Amos to tell him you going to die. Because that might make a brother, Lord have mercy. God please forgive. Please pardon. Right? Not, some people don't want you to be a good solid Christian. Some people benefit from you. I guarantee you, whatever your struggle is, some of, some of y'all got casino struggles. MGM is not handing out tracks. Right? That they got it today. By law, they have to tell you, if you have a problem, dial this number. By law, they have to tell you there's a gambling hotline. Guarantee you it's the smallest print anywhere. Right? But by law, they got it. But they, they're not going to be like, you know what? Go home. You lost your house last week. Don't lose the car, too. They're not going to tell you that. Right? They're not going to tell you your wife was down here looking for you. Your children are missing their father. They're not going to tell you that because it's not in their best interest for you to get delivered. Your, your weed man is not going to tell you, sober up. Face your problems. Go and pray about it. Your weed man is not going to tell you that. He's going to say, you know what? It's going to be all right here. You know, you're having a rough time. This one's on me. Your bartender is going to say, it's going to be all right, Jimmy. Hey, he having a rough day, fellas. Somebody get him one on the house. Here's a devil for your trouble. And I going to say, wine is a mocker. All right, that this will destroy your life. They're not going to tell you that. Why? Because it's not in their best interest for you to get delivered from that thing. So don't go looking for them like, well, why don't they put more signs out to tell us this is bad? The Surgeon General told y'all smoking was bad 50 years ago. Some of y'all still got breezes and cigarettes. So if you don't know what a breeze is, just keep fanning and then we'll be all right. You, you know, it's the, it's the wind outside, right, right? But I, I can tell you this. Ever since they came out with electronic cigarettes, kids in school who never used to smoke cigarettes are addicted to the electronic version of it, right? And, and, and we, we showing them videos in school, kids getting, needing devil lung transplants, and they laughing about it, like, ha, ha, it won't happen to me, right? You, you know, and, and that's not just dumb teenagers, that's dumb grown folks, right? So, so don't, don't, it's, that Amaziah is everywhere. Is what, what I'm trying to get, get down to us right quick. All right, I'm running out of time. I think I'm finally into my, past my original 45 minutes. All right, so we only got 45 more to go and I'll, I'll be caught up, right? So he said, Amos said, not God said. He doesn't want even the king to get straight because that's going to mess stuff up for him. Anyway, it doesn't end with a message to the king. Amaziah has some quote-unquote helpful advice to give to Amos in these next two verses. Notice what he says. Amaziah says to Amos, Amos, dog, let me, let me holler at you, Amos. Right, you, you know, you got this message. And, uh, well, let me read what it says. O seer, go. Flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there 
and prophesied there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It is a temple of the kingdom. Don't that sound spiritual? Don't, don't, don't that sound good? Let me give you guys the, uh, the Flynn translation in a second here. Um, his admonishment is simply this. This is my translation. Go home, live your life, do your thing there. Leave us alone and don't come back. That's the Flynn translation, in case you missed it. Go home, live your life, do your thing there. Leave us alone and don't come back. Now, maybe they said it differently. Maybe they said, me and God are cool. He understands me. Maybe they said, I'm spiritual in my own way. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe they said, you know, whatever they said. But notice how Amos responds, right? Because I, I guarantee you if, you, if you're living your life right, if I'm living my life right, somebody has probably told us, you know, hey, you know what? Do you? I mean, it's a do you culture, so they're not going to tell me not to do me. That would be uh, hypocritical. But they will tell me to do me somewhere else. You know, I'm glad you pray. You go ahead and pray. Keep praying. Pray for me when you're at it. But, you, you know, you ain't, you ain't got to carry your Bible all the time, do you? I mean, you know, don't you got a Bible app? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You can be a little more low-key with it. Don't, you ain't got to be one of them. You're not, I've had somebody ask, you're not one of them type of Christians, are you? I'm like, what type of Christians? You mean them type of Christians? I mean, if you're you a them type of Christian... See us after church, because there are no them type of Christians. There's just Christians. If you if you a them type of Christian, you probably got a foot and sold out, and not the good kind of sold out, right? So so be be one of them type of Christians that's authentically Christian, right? 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 You you know that 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 I like it when they tell me go do you over there, go, go flee. Right, you know, because that, that, that at least means, now this is what, let me, let, me, let, me, let me be pastoral here. Don't be purposely offensive. So some of y'all, we need to tell them that, right? Because some of y'all going to get your little Christian Rambo thing on and you ready to <laughs> step in like that. Like y'all heathens, you at, you at Target, you know? <laughs> You need to repent in aisle 13. Now, time and place. All right. Amos is going to respond to this advice. Verse 14 and 15. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me for following the flock and the Lord said to me go prophesy to my people Israel I, I love this response it's so humble it's almost apologetic at least in the way I read it right Amos sounds like he's saying to Amaziah look man I was minding my own business doing my thing and God drafted me and told me to do this and I'm okay with that you don't have to be all super overzealous. You just got to have a real sense of conviction that God has indeed drafted you and assigned you to do a certain thing that you are committed to doing. You don't have to do it with uh, them. You just got to do it. 
right, right, you, you know, and so um, even if it's going to cause you some level of discomfort, right, uh, this, this is what we have to do. He makes it sound as if he had no other choice but to do this. This is what uh, Amos does, right? Let me ask you, how do you feel about God changing your plans for your life and giving you something different to do for him? Hopefully you see how this is all coming together, right? Because we started earlier talking about this. How, Amos says, I was a herdsman and a key, I mean, a man had two jobs. I'm shepherding and I'm, being, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm whatever sycamore fig tree person is called. Right, right, farmer, whatever, right? And God took me. Now, that don't mean God kidnapped him. It mean God gripped his heart. He had a conviction that God was calling him to do something. And then he said that God didn't just snatch him up. He gave him a new assignment, right? Gave him a, gave him a new assignment and said, go. So presumably, well, it's not, it's not presumably. We know that Amos comes from the southern kingdom, from Judah. Tekoa is south of Jerusalem, right? And so he said, I'm going to ship you up north, and I need you to go and deliver my word to them folks, right? And so Amos's life completely changed. I mean, just think about that for a minute. I mean, he had 401k plans. I'm sure he had plans for a larger farm and more trees and you know, I don't know if he had a wife or anything. I don't know what his social life was like, right, right? But he wasn't sitting there thinking, you know, I'm, I'm doing nothing with my life. I wonder if God has something for me to do. I'm just kind of bored. Uh, right, right? I mean, that's not what Amos was doing when God, he was busy doing what he was doing. He had plans. And God had other plans. You busy doing what you're doing. I, you know, has God interrupted your plans yet? Uh, has, has he, has he interrupted? <laughs> you said that too loud, Sharita. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> right? He, he doesn't have a problem interrupting our plans. Guess why? Because he owns us. So he gets the right to shuffle the deck and redistribute his pieces. Sometimes without too much notice, warning, consultation. This is what it is, folks. I'm sorry. I, we got a look at your neighbor moment. We've had a talk to your neighbor moment. We had a what up though moment. This is a look at your neighbor moment. Go ahead. It's a safe space. Look at your neighbor. And tell them. Now remember, the question was, how are you feeling about God changing your plans for your life and giving you something different to do for him? All right, so look at your neighbor, look at him deeply, look at him, compassion, look at him, look at him, and, and, and tell him, you know, concerning the answer to this question, go ahead and tell him, it sucks. <laughs> I, I feel you sometimes. It sucks sometimes when God alters your trajectory in a way that you had no thoughts, plans, or intents on doing. He alters your trajectory, right? Uh, you, you know, and if I, if I had time, I'd tell you the million times I had plans to go this way, that way, and that way. And because I'm thinking I'm spiritual, so I'm going to factor in, oh, this is good, this is good. And if God, you decide something else, we can do this. Because I'm spiritual. And he said, no, no, no. I want you to do this. 
Way away from that. And this is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you more than you thought. It's going to take you longer than you thought. There's going to be people involved. Right? You, you know, like, ah, oh, it sucks sometimes. Right? And I gotta, we just got to let that rest there for a minute. Because so when we get, I want us to be okay with emotionally having to catch up with where God is for our life. And part of that means I got to be okay with saying, God, this really sucks. I don't like it. Right? Now, you can't stay there. But it's okay to admit to God because he already knows that you're there. So go ahead and acknowledge it. And then God, pour into me. Give me some grace. Give me whatever I need. Start working on my heart to move me where you got to move me, right? I know it sucks, but you know what sucks worse? <laughs> Not doing what God told you to do. <laughs> that, that sucks worse in every way you can think of it. Because after all, I just told you earlier, prolonged, purposeful disobedience leads to, pop quiz, what? Desolation, destruction, and death. So if we don't get in line with God, guess what we got coming? Now, let's measure it right quick. Let's take a quick poll. Who wants desolation, destruction, and death for, while doing your own thing over here? Raise your hand. And who wants, it sucks sometimes, but God will give me grace and bless over here. Now, I need y'all to take a big selfie and see all those raised hands when you get home and God tell you something. Is that, you know how you blow the picture up and you see, oh, I was in the audience. That was me with my hand raised. All right. We get into this last part. I don't think I've ever had to do it, but I got to issue a warning. Before I give you that warning, you see, if you're not doing what God has told you to do, then you're in a similar position to Amaziah. Make sure you recognize that. Make sure we recognize that. If we're not doing what God told us to do, we're in a similar position to Amaziah. And I say that because I know what's coming, right? Here's your warning. As we look at these last two verses, this is going to sound very harsh, but remember to identify first with God. Verse 16 and 17, now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. It, it's, a, it's sobering. I mean, I, I don't have words, I mean, for like, dog, God. You, you, you know, Amaziah, you told me to go directly against what God told me to do. God says, go and prophesy. You said, leave and don't. That, those are diametrically opposed. You, sir, will experience 
desolation, destruction, and death. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking after we read this. Why the wife? Why the children? I mean, it's, it's legitimate in our humanity to think, why the wife? Why she got to be a prostitute? Why, why the children got to die? It's legitimate to think that in our humanity. And I don't have an answer for you except to say that you should be thinking God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, God is merciful, God is perfect, God is love. What did they do? When I see something that confronts my humanity so tough and it makes me question God, I cannot get to the point where I'm doubting the judgment of God. I got to first say that there must be something that's not written in the text for God to so come against this wife and this chil these children in this manner, right? I I'm not going to spend time trying to fill in blanks that the scriptures didn't give us. You know, that so-called sanctified imagination. And that would just be conjecture on my part. But here's what I'm not in any doubt about. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. God is merciful. God is perfect. And so when God got to do this, I can only wonder what did they do because I can't wonder God. I, I can never bring his immutable characteristics into question. If I do, I got to throw away my Bible. I got to abandon my faith, disavow my membership, right? Because if you can't trust God, this is a meaningless endeavor. You're wasting your time. There's a tennis court somewhere we should go beyond right now, right? right? There's a, a show to watch, a, a lunch to get. If I can't trust God, this is a meaningless endeavor, folks. He is not wrong in his judgment. No one is punished by accident. Yeah, in, in the American criminal justice system, we find out so-and-so is not guilty after they spent 20 years in prison. DNA evidence exonerated them. Right, right? You, you know, man is imperfect. We, we can't do justice perfectly. God is perfect. He can only do justice perfectly. And so even when it confronts us to the core of our emotional being, we cannot bring God into question. So what are we to do with all that we've heard today? What are we to do with this? Well, I want to submit to you four points of application. Write this down. Four points of application today as I close. Point number one, be obedient to his call because God determines the timing, manner, and severity of his judgment. Be obedient to his call because he determines the timing, the manner, and the severity of his judgment. God didn't ask, what do you think I should do with this family? What do you think I should do with Amaziah? He just did it, right? As we see, this man was a wicked man. Presumably, all that was around him was. And so God judged in the way that he did. Point number two, remember that God judges us all by the same standard. God judges us all by the same standard. If you're wondering what that plumb line is today, it's not a what, it's a who. 
I mean, if you want to say it's a what, it's the written word. If you want to say it's a who, it's the living word. It's Jesus himself. He is the plumb line. How do I know? Because Jesus came, tabernacled amongst us, lived this perfect life, this exemplary life to show us what a straight wall looked like. So, now, all of us are crooked walls. I mean, you know, he's slowly but surely trying to straighten us up a little bit at a time. All right, he don't snap us back in the place. He break us. Right, right, slow and steady like Play-Doh. Right, you know, you know, you roll Play-Doh in your hand, you can get a nice straight line. All right, then you cook it. Right, you, you know, so he, but, but he is the barometer by which we are judged. Right, right, you, you know, and, 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 and his word helps you to fence us in, to give us these boundaries that we have. He's that plumb line. So remember that God judges us all by the same standard. Thirdly, side with God versus everybody and everything, no matter what it costs. Side with God versus everybody and everything, no matter what it costs. Paul said, you know what, I'm persuaded. Death, life, all this stuff, none of that can separate me from the love of God. He said later, you know what, all the sacrifices I have to make, all the stuff I've lost, I look at it like it's pocket lint. You know, you go down in your pocket when you broke, and you come up with the little stuff that's at the bottom of your pocket. You, you, you know, that, that's, that sums up all the struggles, all the strife, all the drama that we're going to have to put up with in life for representing Christ and following him to the best of our abilities. Right? So never think God is asking you to do too much, to sacrifice too much, because his reward is an exceeding great reward. It's so exceeding, we can't even quite imagine what it is. And so for those of you who have great imaginations, keep on imagining, but just know God's going to blow your mind still. Right? He, this, this is the God that we serve. He rewards us richly. And then lastly, if you don't remember anything else that I said today, remember this. God, don't play. So don't play with God. Amen? God bless you, saints. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.